Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In the Shoes of podcast, where I make it my goal to see life as much as possible from someone else's point of view. Just like we all have a unique heartbeat, every single one of us sees life only from our own perspectives. Think about it. Can you see and process life exactly as Elon Musk sees and processes life? The answer is you can't, and it applies to every living conscious being here on this pale blue dot. Hey, 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 hey. Thanks for checking in today for another episode of In the Shoes of. Today, I have a dude all the way from New Zealand. It's actually not just any dude, though. It is Dr. Sherrod Paul. So Dr. Paul is hes quite a few different things. He's an author of fiction and nonfiction, including the book Genetics, The Genetics of Health, which is pretty rad. He's a scientist, a geneticist, an animal biologist, a skin doctor, a university teacher, a TED Talk alumni, a Blue Zone expert, an entrepreneur, and those are just the things that I know about. So who knows what else What else he's done. In this episode, we're going to talk about a number of different things. We'll talk about, of course, the genetics of health, his fiction books a little bit, some of his TED Talks. We're going to talk about how slaves were picked to be brought over to the, uh, the Americas. Uh, we're going to talk about J.K. Rowling tweets. We're going to talk about mitochondria, how to manage stress, coffee, lemurs, orangutans, golden spirals. I mean, seriously, we're just we're going all over the place here. But it's believe me, it's well worth the ride. It's a longer ride. But seriously, it's like a nice, long, good road trip along the beach. If you know what I'm saying. Once again, if you have friends or family who are deaf or hard of hearing, please direct them over to intheshoesof.org, where I either have or will have text so that they can enjoy the podcast as well. This podcast was recorded in beautiful Los Angeles, California at the Lux Hotel on Sunset. Sounds kind of classy, right? It was. We didn't pay for it, though. I mean, we parked on a side street because I didn't want to pay for parking. The first question I asked Dr. Paul, of course, is what shoes he was wearing at that moment. They were pretty rad. I got to be honest. I just got them in Rome. It was funny. I was in Rome and I was directly opposite the Trevi Fountain. And then I saw these shoes. And then I, it's funny, everywhere I've gone, people have commented on these shoes. Really? <laughs> it's funny. I was on Good Day or Great Day Washington morning show last week. And the host sent me a Twitter message and he said, Doc, your shoes were a big hit on our show. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. So you're a number of different things. A medical doctor, an entrepreneur, a geneticist, a Blue Zone expert. Am I missing anything? I suppose animal biologist because I work with animals. I operate on them as well. So that's partly gives me an insight into how humanity evolved and what makes us same or different. So quite a few different things. And I want to get to all of them. But first, I want to walk our listeners through the path that led up to that point. Was there a certain point where you knew what you wanted to do and what you needed to do in order to get there? I think the secret, I mean, I've asked this question many times, like even my publishers here, for example, they said to me, we can't mention the fact that you've written novels in the US because it may devalue your science because you're the only one who's written fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and medical textbooks. But really, I've never stopped or thought of them as achievements. I I think the secret is do the things you're passionate about. Okay, I know that we've all probably heard the just do what you're passionate about speech probably a couple times, but listen a bit more. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it later on in the episode. 
and then automatically you're more driven to do it because you're passionate about it and then automatically you get good at it and then it just happens so typically when people ask me to name the books I've written or so, I always miss out one or two because you don't actually think about them as achievements but at that time you're passionate about it and you did it and it's gone so I was just last week somebody asked me this and I later on when I they listed all mine my daughter pointed out she said they missed this book and I said oh it was my fault I actually did it because you forget and and it's because you're not doing it for the prestige or the money but in my view if you do it because you're passionate about it you can't help but make some money and you can't help be good at it. Just an FYI, this was recorded in a hotel hallway, so sometimes you'll hear some things in the background like footsteps and voices, maybe ghosts, I'm not really sure. Anyway, the staff was really kind. They turned off the music on the speaker directly above us, so thank you, Lux. Appreciate it. All right, here we go. Did you make a conscious decision at some point that you would be more than a doctor, that you would also write books and study blue zones and the like? No, I think... Funny if I actually hadn't decided on what I wanted to do. By nature, I was quite curious. And I think that's probably the most important thing. So being curious about different things. So I was actually born in England and my parents went to India to do medical mission work. So um, so I was England childhood for five years of my life. And then I went to India. Then I went back to the UK. And then now I live in New Zealand and I teach in Australia. So I'm a little much like a little global citizen. Yeah. But But what I found is that where we were in India was so remote that part of my school, the only access was by bullock cart, you know, a cart, uh, you know, drawn by an ox, oxen cart. So really, I think of times when bandicoots, these big rats, would come into our classroom and would spear them with our cricket stumps and we'd get in trouble for getting all this blood on the floor and things <laughs> like that. So, so, but what I was thinking is it was quite idyllic. And nowadays, you know, we're so paranoid about our kids and where they are and stuff like that. So you were just curious about everything. But when the point came to decide what I wanted to do, um, both my parents were doctors, my grandparents except for one, my uncles, aunts. So it was almost the natural thing to do. But actually my first interest was in physics and actually people thought I was a little bright and they said the facilities are not there in India. If you want to do this kind of physics, you need to really go to America. And I was pushed ahead to university quite young. So people said he's too young to go to America on his own. And this was years ago. So I would have been like 16 or something like that, 15 or 16. So really, I ended up thinking, all right, I'll do medicine. So it was really, it was, I was never driven by a direction. But when I did medicine, I was always a natural writer, I think. Because the funny story is, on one of my book tours, I met an old friend from Canada who happened to be at school with me in India. And she said to me that when I was nine, I gave her a poem, a poem titled The Donkey as a, a, a donkey to her. Yeah. I, I thought that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. That. Uh, I, and also I thought that's pretty cool, smooth for a nine-year-old chatting of a girl giving her some poetry. So, yeah. but, but the funny thing is those days there was no internet. So really, I didn't know that I wrote poetry myself. So it, later on, now I have a book on poetry, but I think the things, I think you just do what you're interested in and be open to trying things. And after all, we live once. So I think, you know, I've said, you know, in life is like a tasting platter. So it's better to sample stuff rather than be uncomfortably full. Life is like a tasting platter. So it's better to sample stuff rather than be uncomfortably full. 
At this point, Dr. Paul and I were rapping a little bit about tasting platters and whatnot, because I'm totally a tasting platter type of guy, uh, though I do like to eat huge salads. I've got to admit that. It's, it's just so delicious. Anyway, before the interview, Dr. Paul gave me a copy of his book, The Genetics of Health. I started reading it. I haven't read the whole thing, but it is pretty awesome. So I asked him to elaborate a little bit on what he uh, wants to accomplish with the book, what kind of message he wants to get out there. So I'll let him go for it from here. Yeah, I think my interest firstly is in medicine. I think I've often felt that what differentiated my practice or perhaps what made my practice more successful is that fact that I treat all patients as I would myself or my family. I think that's really an important point. And I think that's been a philosophy which has driven my practice. So, for example, all of my patients have my mobile phone number. So sometimes when I've been traveling on this book tour, I'd get a call at sure. a wrong time. But people will talk to you like you're back home because they have no idea you're somewhere else. And I don't mind that. I think it's okay. I hope it happens right now. I think that would be cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, I don't. But the funny thing is, you see, one thing in medicine and when I did medicine, I got a little bored because medicine is very didactic. You know, you can study your anatomy, physiology. It's actually not as hard as people think. So I ended up later doing law and philosophy and ethics. And what I found is that medicine and law, the first thing which struck me is they had sets of rules. They're very rigid. They didn't let other people in. So naturally, when you have that guild or a cartel kind of an approach, what you find is law doesn't always lead to justice, especially if you don't have money. That's a good quote to remember. Law doesn't always lead to justice, especially if you don't have any money. And the similar thing in medicine won't lead to health unless you take personal responsibility. And I think that's a message in life. We need to take personal responsibility for ourselves. And in looking at it, what I found is, how do we do that? You know, can we shape our genes? And you know, what we realized is because in studying evolutionary biology, we know that skin color was shaped as people migrated. We know our ability to tolerate Milk was because lactose genes developed in a famine in Europe. We knew in Asia people were hunter-gatherers, so they were more lactose intolerant. So we can actually explain. So we know that the slave trade, for example, in the U.S., people were selected based on their saltiness so that they would survive the journey. People actually, the buyers actually licked the slaves and the kind of paintings about it. So all these things created unique genetic types in certain areas. So how do we know what kind of gene type we are? So for a start, you know, the broad general rules, we all know sugar is bad for us, too much salt is perhaps bad for us. But there are a lot of variables in the middle which are newer things which huma humanity has adopted, like coffee, for example. Hold up. He's going to talk about coffee, coffee intake. If I find out that I shouldn't be drinking coffee based on my genetic profile, then I'm shutting this whole operation down. I'm not sure if I can call a podcast an operation like that, but I'm seriously doing it. So if you look at medical studies, you'd have some which will say coffee is good, some will say coffee is bad, some will say coffee is okay, so you know what's right. I only look at the ones that say it's good. Absolutely, absolutely. But what I found is that if you apply genetics to it, there is a specific gene which breaks down caffeine, and it determines whether you will metabolize it fast or slow. And depending on that, it determines your risk of heart disease if you have coffee or not. I'm just going to assume that I'm one of those guys who metabolizes caffeine just fine. So, yeah, I know, I know, personal responsibility, all that good stuff, I should probably find out, but, you know. So what I found is once you put this into the mix, the curve actually splits into a perfect U, and then you can actually, one side, uh, for whom coffee is very good, and for some people, in excessive doses, it could be bad. Yeah. So what I looked at is there are many other things, like 
Indian subcontinental people, typically almost all of them are vitamin D deficient. And vitamin D is unusual because it's actually a hormone and not a vitamin because it's produced by a body. By definition, vitamins are things which we don't produce on a body. Well, that's certainly a misnomer I didn't know about. Vitamin D is not a vitamin at all because it's a hormone produced by the body. By definition, a vitamin is something that is not produced by the body, as he just said. Um, According to the dictionary on my Mac, it is any of a group of organic compounds that are essential for normal growth and nutrition and are required in small quantities in the diet because they cannot be synthesized by the body. So vitamin D is a hormone which regulates a calcium. But if you have a low vitamin D and then you're consuming calcium like milk, which happens in India, you actually have a sitter for heart disease and diabetes because you no longer have a regulator, so that calcium lines your arteries. So actually, we see an epidemic in the Indian subcontinent. So if you look at it in this broad-based approach, not only public health measures can be put in place, but you can actually educate the public better. I mean, you can predict things like, you know, Olympic track and field medals, populations based on migration, skin color. So it's quite, I also think it's fun because, you know, it gives you a perspective and you can just sit back and look at it. And, you know, biology has no bias. Um, Bigotry does. Yeah, we were talking about this even before the interview that uh, I think especially here in the States, we're, we're such a mixed pot, a melting pot of people we haven't for so long. And we've had racial problems, racial tensions, especially even right now that people are scared to even identify differences where it's obvious we have some obvious biological differences. Our skin color being the first and foremost, people say, I personally don't like the phrase, I don't see color. I understand what they mean. Absolutely. Everybody sees it. It's the first thing everyone notices. I mean, that's a fact. And and yeah, like I was in uh, traveling to New York and I was visiting a friend in New Jersey and I was on uh, this radio program last week and we were talking about this salt gene and it was another doctor interview and he said oh you need to be very careful saying that and I said no because I'm not you know saying that's right or wrong I tested myself and I actually have a gene which retains salt so I would have made a good slave so there's no problem about it it's just the fact that's how history was a lot of things in history were bad and there's some things which were good you know it's it's just the fact it's that what it is and it's just science. Since we were on the topic of race I decided to ask Dr. Paul if he encountered any obstacles or lack thereof because of his ethnicity. Yeah, actually very much so, although I usually don't talk about it only because I think that I'd, you'd like your story to be positive and encourage other people rather than think that you had to fight a lot of battles. But I think if you moved many countries like I've done, um, it's natural that not only you encounter it, because like you said, you know, the first thing people notice is that you're different in, in a different society when you move to. But also, yeah, in fact, I thought if I have to summarize and I think virtually nothing in my life I've gotten through the front door, right. it's always been through the window or the back door or simply <laughs> bashing it down. Can you and, give an example? Yeah, it's just many things. It's like funny, like even when I went to New Zealand, for example, because those days when I went to New Zealand, we didn't have the point system like now. So you had to apply for a job and then you get in. So I applied for a job and then I got it because my surname was Paul and I was born in England and people assumed I was a proper Englishman. But when I landed in New Zealand, it was quite different. Those days were much di- more different now. And the job just literally disappeared. And, and the funny story was, you know, months later, I met a gynecologist who had come from England and my original training was plastic surgery with burns and trauma. And we were actually at a party together and 
so basically i didn't have a job and i had to try and get something else and so for a while i thought the easiest thing to get into at that time was family medicine so i trained in that for a while and eventually went back into surgical field and then ended up becoming a skin cancer expert but the funny thing was he said to me oh i came to new zealand and they said well if you hold this position like for a month we'll find you a position in your field so he actually ended up getting my job which was totally funny and i remember the funny side was he had never operated about the belt because he was a gynecologist so i said to him i hope you didn't make people's faces look like they perineums <laughs> you know so but, but 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 you see i think i think this was actually pretty funny to me i had a hard time stopping myself from laughing the important thing in life is not to let things get to you and and i think if there's a message in this book it's also about this year i would have been a doctor for 30 years and touch wood i've never lost a working day because of illness i travel a lot i'm exposed to sickness and in the beginning i thought just must be genes and then others in my family do get sick and ill and when i came here every radio show had somehow heard about this so everybody was like they were asking the others have you do you know people who've got sick and everybody had been ill during the year and and i think there's a thing about being positive and not dwelling on these things so you know i i answer this question because you said it but it's not something i dwell on because the other way of looking at it is this your life wouldn't be maybe it wouldn't have given me the fighting spirit that i had and in some ways i would have become a mainstream doctor as at an interview many years ago and i infamously said seven out of the 10 worst human beings in my life i met in medicine and none of them were patients and they flashed it across <laughs> the headline but it's because it's easy to if you're playing god literally it's easy to be egoistical it's easy to think you may not be the god but you're a god so i think you know you get a lot of people like that big egos and things and i think it's just i think i could have turned out exactly like that and then my career would have become one dimensional so really all the people who block me i really think i have to thank them you know i bow down to them i said thank you guys you know thank you for not letting me not giving me the opportunity and you know as a writer as well you face rejections and I, i've met many writers many festivals and luckily i'm lucky to be invited to all these international festivals and most of them will tell you they've been rejected i mean you may have seen the thing in recently jk rowling harry potter she sent in her novel under a assumed name pseudonym the new one and she got a rejection letter which said first thing is you don't know the first thing about writing so we would suggest you take this writing course which is like 3 years and then it said after you take this writing course don't bother contacting us but you may try some lesser publishers so she actually put it on twitter you'll find it so so what i mean is because you know it's full of that kind of you know the artificial talent doesn't always come out but it's easy for you to get defeated if you believe that how is that just for completely encouraging i mean jk rolling is estimated to be worth over a billion dollars did you hear that over a billion dollars and from what did she make an app that reminds your ai power trash can that it's time to empty itself did she build some corporate empire no she wrote books and when she made a submission under a pseudonym she was patronized That should give all of us just a bit of hope and moreover a case study for pushing forward despite any rejection. I mean seriously, if you believe in something fully, then just do it. So I don't think and even Stephen King who writes so many, you know, novels, I think he has a record of writing most or whatever. He says that he used to put each rejection slip on his bedside and eventually it was like an entire wall of rejection slips I think he had about 200 and 
50 or whatever. So, so in life, I think life is not about rejection, but how you deal with it and how you handle the stress. And, and I think that's the messages, you know, that's part of life. And, and same with happiness. You know, I think, I think we are too overburdened uh, by the fact that we have to be happy. Like, like, especially in the U.S., when I come here, if you're not happy, they want you on a pill. You know, it's, it's like, what's wrong with, you know, having a little off day? There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing's going to happen. Just, you know, you don't have to be happy all the time. You don't have to be sad. I, I just think, you know, we, we spend too much time worrying about things which don't really matter. If you stop and think about it. And I think the other thing which has given me perspective is I work in primarily in skin, but also especially in skin cancer oncology. So when you meet young people dying of melanoma or old people dying of melanoma, nobody has ever said to me, Doc, you know, I wish I made more money or wish I married for the sixth time. Almost all of them felt that they had regrets that they didn't spend enough time with children. They didn't love people. So it was actually all these emotional things which came out, but it was nothing to do with material wealth. So I think, you know, the way I've lived my life, you know, we do a lot of pro bono work. One day a week, I teach creative writing to children in lower decile schools. So it's helped them in math and science. And for a while, it, I ended up on the National Commission of UNESCO as literacy advisor. But it helped my writing. So I think it's not made me the wealthiest doctor, which I could have been because I've seen so many patients. But what it's meant is I'm actually richer for it. So, you know, and I think you're comfortable enough that you can travel everywhere and you, you know, people think, you know, how can you be so fit and you look younger? And then I think it's, it's all good. And, and I think it's just we, we get screwed up about things too much. And I think my simple message, I mean, yesterday somebody asked me, how do we manage stress? And I think the simple message is just two. Um, the other novel I just gave, Greg, actually is set in Tibet. And there is a thing there, one of the characters says, only two types of problems in the world, you know, ones you are in control of and ones you can't. And that's life. So the problems you can control are typically your job, your friends, what you want to do what for the rest of your life. And then there are things you can't control. And it's typically what other people think of you, what other people expect you to do, or also what you expect others to do, like your children, for example. And I think if you look at the first part, no point whinging about it because you have control. So do it. Make the change. There's no point saying, I don't like my job. Quit it. Show some courage. The second part, I mean, as you've done, I mean, you've moved away from corporate and you're doing what you do. And I think I respect that. The other part is things you don't have control. Typically, guys may be jealous of you or not, or they may like you or they don't like you, but you actually don't have control over it. So why worry about it? So, so I actually think there's no need to get carried away both ways. You know, you're pleased when people like you, but there's no point. Like people always say to me, you know, you won New Zealand's highest medical honor. You've been finalist for New Zealand of the year, things like that. And I think we're a small country, so let's not get carried away. Really, you know, you know. So, so I just think in life, we get carried a bit too much, both in our own hype and also both in our own misery. And I think there's no need for that. And then it makes us more healthier because stress, medically speaking, stress suppresses our immune system. And interestingly, generosity is shown to improve your health and improve your mood. So if there is a reason to give to other people, it may be for a selfish reason for your own health. We talked a little bit more about how really we just need to stop caring so much about things we don't need to care about in life. And then I asked Jared what he thought were some of the most flawed ideologies pervasive in the world today. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. Two things. I think the first thing is um, we are the only creature which 
cannot see that we need to protect our environment. So what I find astounding is if I start talking to the environment saying let's protect it, suddenly you're seen as some kind of an activist. So let's just take a crocodile for example and if you put a crocodile, so there's a crocodile bank in South India and they used to put, and there are plenty of crocodiles in Australia and you put them in overcrowded area, the crocodile female buries eggs at a different depth so that she produces more males so she controls the population so that's not overcrowded. So the point is every other creature actually looks to protect their environment or make it habitable. But we don't have that instinct. So not only with overpopulation, but also with using up resources or burning fossil fuels. We just, let's go for it now, you know. Drill, baby, drill, as you guys say in the US, right? <laughs> that's it. But, but, but what I think is, but what I think is, so that's one thing. And so that goes for the external environment, also goes for the internal environment. So we're actually not intuitive. So salt is a preservative. So it was good in times when it didn't have refrigeration. So all our packaged foods have a lot of salt. We consume too much sugar. All these things are bad for our internal environment because these things affect our mood, especially sugar. So the first thing is we lack intuition. And, and I think the, the, the second aspect I think we need to think about is looking at it from the perspective of the other person. Dr. Paul, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we don't do it enough. And I've learned it in medicine because I think it's helped my practice by being humbled by the fact that people come to you because they don't know. So something which seems so obvious to may not be obvious to somebody else. So it's the same thing in how you treat other people. I think the simple message is, you know, treat them like what you would want to be treated. It's the same whether you're a doctor, whether you're a company, whether you're somebody else. So we were talking earlier about these airlines and things. And I think if they treated somebody like they would treat themselves then. But I think part of the problem, therefore, is there's also something wrong when we have 45 individuals with the same wealth as everyone else in the world. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a communist. I believe in entrepreneurship. I've been in drive. But I think that sucks the oxygen out of a lot of other people because, you know, you end up controlling over a small. So, so I think fundamentally, these are things which doesn't happen in any other animal kingdom. And actually, the interesting thing I was saying, the other funny thing I was saying is that, all right. We're about to go in some deep waters of science up in here, so prepare yourselves. I was talking about this mitochondrial DNA, and uh, as you know, all creatures had one cell. For 1,500 million years, all creatures had only one cell each. And then they clumped together, and then they joined up, and then they started sharing resources, and then some organs decided, some things decided to take on different functions, and that's how we evolved. But these cells needed more energy, so there were independent organisms, mitochondria, which got swallowed up. So mitochondria originally existed as separate creatures, and they're now part of our own cellular system. So mitochondria therefore have their own DNA. Now here's what's interesting thing is because the sperm meets the egg, the mitochondria travels with the sperm because it powers its swimming till it reaches the egg. But fundamentally, finally, for the animal kingdom, we males are useless because we only have enough mitochondria to reach the egg and then the, it dies. So the mitochondrial DNA never gets passed on, only from the female. So that's different. So what you know is when people looked at the mitochondrial DNA, say to them, full of useless information, but when they looked at the mitochondrial DNA of women in Europe, all women in Europe descended from seven women. What? I, I had never heard of this until now. That is seriously interesting as... Right. And, all women, wait, so mm, all women in Europe. Yeah, descended in seven women, but seven different mitochondrial types. 
But these okay. didn't live at the same time. So because mitochondria is very stable, the DNA. So it may have changed 10,000 years apart or 100,000 years apart, but there are only seven types. So, so the funny thing is, if you look at the animal kingdom, therefore the males are generally superfluous because they're just there for reproduction and mosquito gets killed after it reproduces or whatever. So we uniquely certain things is we don't have enough role for women. And it's funny saying it as a man, but the truth is that I was saying yesterday, maybe we've got to look at this DNA and think, you know, this mitochondria is a lot more stable, doesn't so change. So maybe we need more of the balance and we don't have that enough. So we're not looking to our own animal kingdom. And one of the things I was saying in this book, The Genetics of Health, is in Australia, the Aboriginal people and in New Zealand, the Maori, they have a legend about the seven star Pleiades, the seven star constellation. And Australia, the story is... There's a jumper, jumper man who's like a stalker chasing these seven women and he wants to marry all of them and they run up the mountain and they fling themselves and they go into the, and they say those are our ancestors. And what's interesting, what I was pointing out in the book is we may dismiss the story as bizarre, but how amazing is the coincidence that when you look at mitochondrial DNA, that's just seven. There wasn't eight, there wasn't nine. You know, so, so you know, there is a bigger purpose to things than our selves and and i think to some degree we're too caught up in ourselves and i and i I don't mean it badly or selfishly but actually to be honest i don't actually like today this morning i was in dallas and i came back and last night landed so when i went to the cbs she was like you know i'm really sorry to travel so much and really appreciate and i said no that's all fine because i'm here to do a job and i want to come here so it's all good so if you get a bit of jet lag so what it's part of the fact if I didn't want to do that interview, I'd say no. There are many things I've said no to, and that's fine. The fact I'm here with you is because I want to be here. So I love it. So it doesn't matter if you're a little bit tired or it doesn't matter. Does it matter? But I think we get it. But the other way of looking at it is if I started thinking, oh, my God, I'm tired. See, I think most people get jet lag before they get on the plane. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, I was going to London last time, and when I landed, and everybody was like, how come you're not jet lagged? And I said to them, the way to deal with it is before you travel, especially a long flight from New Zealand is like 24 hours from London. And what I said to them is, behave like you're in London. So the last day when I'm working, towards the end of the day, I look at London time and I just start behaving like that. So you get on the plane and if it's night and it's day in London, I just stay up. And then when they want you to have breakfast, I say, no, I'm just going to try and sleep. And the way I look at it is, yes, maybe you can't sleep properly, but as a doctor or a surgeon, I had read about this too, and I've tried implementing it, but I admit that I'm probably not quite as disciplined as the doc here. Anyway, we've got some more good stuff coming up, so stay with me here. I think a lot of our life is worrying about things we don't need to worry about. You know, it's like today when I came back, somebody asked me how did I was on KTLA yesterday, and somebody brought me kindly a DVD they had made of it, and they said to me, did you watch yourself yesterday on KTLA? I said, I haven't had time. And they said, oh, it was good. But um, they said, have a look and see what you think. And what I said is, it is how it is. Uh, So I'm not playing a role for someone else. What you see here, the opinions, everything is what you get in the book or what my patients get, what everyone else. So actually, if you, in in a funny sort of way, if you try and live your life true to yourself, a bit more authentic, then it's less stressful. So so what I find is that because I don't have to put on a show, when I'm on KDLA, I'm not, you know, somebody who's acting. 
her role in life. Yeah. I am just me. So if I screwed up, I screwed up and that's okay because I'm not really a professional. I've never had media training, so I don't mind it. So that's what I was saying to them. I don't matter. I, I don't really mind. I want to do this show and I'm on the TV. I'm talking about the book. I want to promote the book. But if I didn't do as well, you can be critical afterwards. I mean, in Washington, I felt I spoke too soft, so I didn't realize that they weren't going to adjust the volume. So you can be critical, but that doesn't mean that's okay. That's how it is. So you think, okay, next time keep notes and, and that's fine. you know. But I think people get too caught up in the anxiety of I'm going to screw this up or I have to do this. This is my one chance. I don't think life is just about one chance. When you talk to, yeah. I've been at so many events, I've met many successful people and it's never been that first chance that they succeeded. Oh. So, so I think, you know, it's, it's just life. We just get too anxious about it. And it's possibly because, again, speaking from evolution, this anxiety is a survival response. Because if you're a more scary cat, you survive because you didn't go and fight a saber to a tiger. You're still in the cave thinking, it's going to get me. I'm going to be still here. You guys go out fight and they didn't come back. Yeah. So you ended up reproducing right. and propagating your genes. Right. So we have more scary cats in the world now than we have for brave people. And that's true. Well, we're scared of everything, right? And unnecessarily so. Do you think that we still have a lot of things in our DNA that are just very old and primal that really aren't applicable for today, but they kind of bubble up and create these anxieties when they should really be reserved for, I don't know, a saber-toothed tiger or something of that nature? I do say that in the book we overuse it because we're in traffic and somebody cuts you and we're using yes. the stream response. Yeah. But, but the other way to look at it is stress is useful in short bursts. So that's why doing certain exercises or pushing yourself a bit is good because if you think about the stress response you secret adrenaline which cuts off your arteries a bit so you don't bleed to death then you have noradrenaline then you have cortisol the steroid but if you're chronically stressed so this was actually interesting because when i was researching skin and aging what i found was a pathway a molecular level what we call the nr of two pathway which is a stress response which is an antioxidant response it's the same for chronic injury uh, physical injury, emotional abuse, and cancer. So in other words, if you have cancer or you're living in an abusive relationship or you're stressed, you will look older. Yeah. Or if So it was impossible to have a, you know, bad health and have good skin. And a big part of it was stress because stress also pushes your sugar levels up. So we did studies in medical students, just exam time stress, and it pushes their HbA1c, something we use to monitor blood up. So, so I think you're right. Largely we're stressed. But on the other hand, we haven't changed that much. We think we've evolved, but we haven't evolved a lot. So what we've replaced is what you had tribes in the past. Perhaps now you have political parties or football teams. They're just as tribal. You know, if you go to, you know, you, you go to England between the football teams, they're just as tribal. They're still thuggish. And you perhaps have, you know, between your baseball teams, your NFL teams, you're probably just as tribal. So I don't think we've changed a lot. I don't think so either. I think it's just morphed a little bit and we made it a little bit more shiny is all. That's about it. I know there are a lot of people who struggle with stress. I've struggled with it in the past too. And so I thought, let's get some practical advice from Dr. Paul here. And he gives some great practical and very awesome advice. It's essentially, it comes down to four things, eating, moving, giving, and living. And here he goes. Uh, I summarize it in the book, The Genetics of Health, by saying four points. And that's eat, move, live, and give. 
And I'll explain it a bit. So the first thing, of course, is eating like people who live in blue zones of the world where people live longer and healthier and happier, and which means eating smaller quantities, avoiding uh, too much red meat, um, not doing anything to excess if you're drinking in moderation, that type of stuff, and especially cutting down your sugar. And what you find is these things help. So for example, we know that ancient man, the only sugar source, only added sugar used to be honey because they didn't have manufacturing. Right. So when ancient man used to eat about five uh, grams of sugar a day, the recommendation today is to be under 25 grams. So if you think about it, one Coke drink or Pepsi or any of the sugary drinks has about 35 grams. So one drink, full drink, you've exceeded your ideal sugar limit. Now, a lot of these sugary drinks add caffeine because caffeine dulls your sweet taste receptors. So what it does is then it means that you cannot taste the sweetness, so they have to make it even sweeter. And the reason probably it's done is also because sugar is very addictive. It's on the same opiate receptors. So the first message with eating is cut down your sugar, eat in moderation. Second thing is the importance of movement. We know that when we move, it improves our brain function. We also know that movement like dance is very beneficial. So dancing is very good or endurance exercise is very good, especially leg movement, which involves a bit of balance. So even cycling or um, running or um, walking is beneficial, but something like the tango is particularly beneficial. So it's a funny thing, uh, I don't know if I told you earlier, but I was in the book launch in New York and I was telling about the benefits of tango and this guy got really excited in the crowd and he's Paul Pellicoro. He runs a studio, I think it's called 360 Dance or something in New York and it's just next to the Empire State Building. And he taught Al Pacino to dance the tango and scent of a woman. So he shoots out and he gives me this little tango lesson. <laughs> so Sam, that's the point. And again, you see, we get screwed up about these things as well. Like what I mean is, it doesn't mean you have to be the best at it, but as long as you do it, you get the benefit. So he comes and give me the lesson and I'm thinking, he's so good, I'm crap. But that's okay. It doesn't mean it's still beneficial, right? So that's with movement. And then the third one is, giving because what we know is when genetic studies have been done there's a particular gene called avpr1 which is actually linked to generosity so some people it's there's a gene avpr1 and it's in the book but fundamentally some people have that gene which are naturally more generous but we also know that those people are naturally happier have better mood and fall ill less so in fact there may be a good reason for giving others it may be for your own selfish interests of being healthier. And I think the last thing is living life. You know, people don't live life enough. See, because one thing I worry about America is that you guys have far less holidays than anywhere else in the world. Seriously? Can I get an amen here? I mean, man. Right. So I don't take many holidays, but I'm always doing things I'm passionate about. So I've got a lot of breaks and things. But when you look at Europe versus US, when many studies have been done, Americans have the least holidays, which is like two weeks. And, sure. and, and I met somebody the other day and I was telling them that, and he said to me, it's funny, he was working in an IT company, and he said when his wife or somebody wanted to take more than this two weeks off, the boss said, well, if we can manage without you for two weeks, we can probably manage without you forever. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but, but what I mean, that's it. But, but what I mean is that 
but but that's a you know in America, I think people work too hard, and then it becomes a pursuit of um, the money and the prestige and everything else. But I think none of that is going to buy you happiness. I want to just pause here for a moment of silence. Why? Just out of respect for the solid truth that's just being spoken here. I mean, this is an it's an age-old adage, and everyone knows it, but a lot of times our actions say otherwise, so good stuff. But the other reason people here have to keep working is just for their damn healthcare, because they're working because they're thinking, if I lose my job, I'm going to lose. I mean, how ridiculous is that? You know, so, so I really think, and that's part of this message of this book is really take charge of your health so you don't need so much healthcare for a start, or you don't need so much medication. But also, I think you know, life is meant to be lived because, like I said, at the end of life, no one, everyone seems to have regrets that they didn't do it. So I always say to people, you know, just do it. You know, whatever you want to do, just go ahead and do it. Try it. It may work. It may not work. But, you know, you're not going to die from trying. And so I think that's where a lot of the things I've ended up doing were like when I was a kid, I used to play the piano and then I learned the violin, which I knew I was hopeless at straight away. And then I played the guitar. I mean, as a university, I used to have a band. So I tried everything. And some you were crap at and you gave up. That's okay. But, you know, the thing is, if you live life and you didn't try the things you wanted, I mean, if there's something you want to real aversion to, you don't want to try, that's fine. But I really think that we, like in this book, I say, I think that life is a tasting platter and we have to leave it by sampling things, but not being uncomfortably full. But I think a society has become a society where we gorge on too much. You know, we want too much money, too many cars, like what you were talking about the Maserati earlier. Well, I think it's great. I mean, if you if Maserati is your passion, you dreamt about it, you sleep and you dream about it, go ahead and get one. But don't get it just because you're keeping up with someone else and he's got it. But typically what happens is people are thinking he's bought that, so how come I'm in the same level and I don't have it? So, you know, uh, back home, it was funny. I used to run a bookstore cafe. Um, we had some in Australia and New Zealand. And in fact, we're very proud that we were the only bookstore cafe which was featured in the editions of Time magazine. And the profits used to go into these programs for children that I run for literacy. But the funny thing is that one day before Christmas, because it was a busy time, I remember in New Zealand, I used to tell the staff that we were finishing quite late. And I said to them, because Auckland was quite spread out, that I know I'll drop them home. And I took them to my car and I just have this Mitsubishi because it takes me from A to B and it does its job. And they said to me that, hey, you know, you're a surgeon. We at least expected an Audi. So I said, do you want to lift? I mean, they were disgusted to actually get into it. And I, and, yeah, because they were young people. And, and, and I was like, it was actually reasonably new cover. What I was saying is that they were like, we wanted an Audi. I said, do you want to lift or do you rather take the bus at night? You said, but what I mean is people have these things. But the way I look at it is this. Yes, I could probably afford to get myself a fancier car. But then when I travel, I have to compromise and probably not uh, travel in more comfort. So, you know, you balance and think, what is it that is important? But, but you know, there's no point getting screwed up about it but i think you know we we do get too screwed up about simple things in life so we sweat a lot about you know sweating the small stuff stuff you know it's like too much it's like somebody said this thing about me if you, you know people will say you know i'm really angry because somebody said something bad about you. that's fine and the way i look at it is if somebody really 
say something about you that you don't agree with. If it's scientific, that's fine. They have an opinion. If it's not, and they're just saying it because they don't like you, then you're not going to change their mind. So don't stress about it. And I, and I think the point is, does it matter to you? Why should it spoil your happiness? You know, that's their opinion. It's not yours. So, so I, I just think fundamentally, if you have that kind of an attitude, then you get that inner comfort that, you know, you're, you're pretty calm. It's just funny when you said this, because I was in India recently and it's traveling in the north and even the, all these gurus in India become high tech. They're putting this Fitbit kind of stuff on you and they're monitoring people. I'm just being curious. I was like, okay, whatever, put one on me and see what it is. And, and they said to me, you know, your pattern is a meditative pattern. It's like, because I don't have enough time to really just meditate for meditation's sake. But in a funny sort of way, my daily life becomes my meditation. So there's a concept in India where yoga actually means karma just translates to work. So the idea being when they say it's your bad karma, good karma, what they mean is you do your work and if you accumulate enough good brownie points, you go up in life or if you negativity, then you go down, right? But the idea is to escape it. But there's a concept and yoga just means, um, you know, like a discipline kind of thing. But there is a, there is a concept of karma yoga where your work becomes your meditation or your thing. And I think that's what it is to me. I think coming here, you're busy, whatever, but this is my work. I enjoy it. So I'm actually relaxed. And when I go back, I'm operating on people. Again, I'm relaxed because that's my work. So I think, so everything can be your work. Even your holiday can be your work, but you have to have that attitude that it doesn't, but I think we're too rigid about things. We think this has to be, you know, it's like I'm always doing something on weekends. Somebody emails me, I'll respond because at the other times I'll be busy. But people are again the artificial divisions. No, after Friday, 4 p.m., I'm not going to be contactable till Monday. So people always, when they email me, they apologize. They say, Sorry, I thought I'd get your secretary. And I said, No, it's good that you get me because then it's done. There's not a time delay between my secretary talking to me. So even till today, I get 300 emails a day, but I clear them all. I don't have a middle person because I think I teach it three universities so we have a lot of student queries but i think let me clear it because it's a simple thing sometimes you will give them curt answers and they understand why so they'll say do you think i should do this can i do this and i'll say yes no yes you know just three and that's it but but it's immediately answered and it's done and dusted so when i go to bed i never have to think oh my god did i clear that email did i do this and you know the publicist for Simon and Schuster here, and uh, she was actually saying that to me. She said that a lot of the doctors who were here and they didn't have the time zone problem and she's dealt with others. She said, you do laps around them with your response times. And I said, that's only because I just want to get it out of the way because if I'm doing a lot of guest editorials, somebody wants an opinion on this. I said, let's do it because there's no time. Just get it out of the way. Then you don't have to think, have I done it? You know, and I, th- I think that's the secret to time management. Don't keep a backlog. (laughs) Out of curiosity, and perhaps just for my own benefit, I asked Dr. Paul to elaborate a bit on how to utilize proper time management practices. Because honestly, I don't know how he gets all of the crazy things he does done in a work week. It's mind boggling. I think the biggest thing is two things like we were talking about is really one is making sure the thing you're doing is what you want to do, that you're passionate about. That's That's the first thing. And the second thing is not keeping a backlog. And then the third one is, and and then the third one is 
not getting stressed about it, but seeing the bigger picture of it. So, so for example, when I finish here, I go back for three weeks at work and I'm fully booked. And then I'm in London at the Writers' Festival. I'm in Norway and then I'm in Dublin over three weeks. And between it, I have medical lectures. So everybody's like, so most people get psyched out already thinking about that travel. But the way I look at it is, do I want to talk about my medical research? Of course I do, because I love that stuff. Yeah. And do I want to talk about the book? Yes, of course. And so, you know, even with the publishers, I say to them, hey, I'm fine, just whatever. If another interview, so what? Because that's all part of, I'm helping them and it's helping me. Yeah. But but I think if you get stressed about it and you think, oh, no, I've got to get up. You know, and I think that's where the problem, there are a lot of people who get up in the morning and think, oh my God, I got to go to work. (laughs) And and I think it shouldn't be like that. You need to make your work your fun and your fun your work. And I think that's the simplest way to look at it. And time management is make it fun. Find something pleasurable about it. Because there can be, anything can be made a bit pleasurable if you are a bit creative. I think people listening would probably think, well, that's great, but I'm working a mundane dead-end customer service job for an IT company that doesn't require a lot of thought or creativity. And all I really want to do is become a painter. But how do I become a painter and still make money? I have to pay the bills. I have to pay for healthcare, And it's not like we have a lack of, uh, you know, self-help books out there. Though, of course, I'm of the opinion that many of those are just books created with the message of, you'll get wealthy if you buy this book, when really the purchaser is just helping to make the author wealthy. What would you tell someone who is stuck doing something they really don't like? they don't necessarily see a solution to the problem. Yeah, and actually it's a very good question because I think actually that's your answer is right there. Let's say it's only a dead end because you think it's a dead end. I don't think that, like I said, most things I've done in life, I never got in through the front door. Right. Right. So it would have been a dead end if I thought it was a dead end. But the other way of looking at it is, let's say using your analogy, let's say I was an IT guy who was just answering the phones. Make it creative, you know, rap to them, sing to them, whatever. So make it so fun that you're enjoying yourself. And they'll think, wow, you know, this guy is a bit interesting. So actually more people gravitate towards wanting to get you to call. So the company gets more business or not. But whatever it is, once the creative juices start flowing, you will make another career out of it by it will improve your painting, it will improve your thing because you're naturally expressing that creativity. And so curiosity. Absolutely. And also, I think we have to be curious about every situation because there is an opportunity everywhere, you think. And we don't take it because we sometimes, if you think about a lot of these ideas which are out there and you think they've become such big ideas, they're actually very simple. And you think, why didn't I think about that? You know, someone's come up with something. Yeah. And, and it's because we are not seeing it because you get. The negative part comes to you and you say, I'm in a dead end, I'm going nowhere. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, like I, I work one day a week, like I said, with children. I teach them to read and write stories. And this is one thing in Minnesota, I gave a lecture on the writer as a surgeon was one of the topics. And one of the things I was talking about is how using a writer's approach helps medicine. But actually, I'm going to tell you how it will help you or your listeners in life and business and everything else. So so the fundamentals of writing, 
uh, what we call the three C's. Okay, this is definitely a long podcast. Uh, feel free to take a break, stretch. I mean, not if you're driving. Space out, pet your coyote. I don't know, whatever. Dr. Paul has some boulders of great information to throw our way. So, you know, I just recommend keep on listening because this is some good stuff. Not sure why I just affected that accent, but anyway, here we go. Which is you set the context, you develop your characters, and you resolve conflict. So now let's just look at it in a situation is setting the context is very important because you need to know who you are, right, and what your business is. Right. And so if you're a business, you need to know who you are. The people call it a brand or but you need to know who you are. So what I mean is what is it that gives you pleasure? And that sh- that should be the bottom line. So if you look at the context, this particular book, The Genetics of Health, is a book which is about uh, evolution biology, genetics, is about people taking charge of health. It's a cross between a popular science book and a self-help book, but it isn't a tabloidy book. So I'm straight away setting the context that I know that I'm not going to be competing with the Kardashians, for example. But but is what I mean? But but if I thought I was, not only you're going to get stressed because they're going to outstrip you by sales by a thousand to one, and you're going to think, how can they? Because you know, I think my writing is better. But that doesn't matter. Set your context. And that's the same thing wherever you're in life is know you first and what you like. And that is a problem for many of us. We really don't know who we are or Moreover, what we want. That's it. And and a lot of people don't spend enough time on it. So what I find is that the first thing is, what is it that you want to do? Most people do what other people want them to do. Yes. Right. So so in working with these kids, when I teach them the story, I say to them, I have I was at a very poor school just before I came here, a week before last, and I have a lot of Pacific Island children and Maori children in the school in New Zealand. And I said to one of these kids, what do you want to do? And he wanted to become a barrister just in a cafe. And that's all his ambition was. And I said, okay, so you're going to be the best barrister in the whole world, right? And you're going to have all that. And he said to me, no, I think I'll be okay. And I said to him, you know, if you think you're only going to be okay, other than your mother, nobody will hire you. You see, that's a fact of life. Now I'm going to show you a picture of when you say a good barrister. But on the other hand, it is possible. So I met this guy when me talking to people like this. See if I find the picture for you of showing them who liked art, but he was stuck in a coffee job. So I was talking to him about make your work, your fun, and you yeah. look at that. Oh wow! Look at the 3D effects of the whiskers and now see. So you wow. so you can still be an artist. He showed us this picture of an image crafted by a barista in the froth of a cappuccino or a latte of a tiger. It's seriously detailed. Not to worry, I'm going to throw a pic of what Dr. Paul showed me right on the website, in the shoes of.org. Yeah, so, so you see, the point I'm making is, the point I'm making is, if you made your work your fun, you don't have to lose your dreams, and it will come, it will happen. But, so that's first setting the context. The second thing is, you have to develop your own character as well as the characters of people around you. So one thing I try and do with my staff is always sit them down and say, what else do you want to do? So, Mano, we have two main nurses who work for me. One is doing more management. The other one, I put her more on the skin. I sit down and say, what is it? Because I don't want you to just be doing the same thing in 10 years because you'll stagnate and your work will suffer for it. So you need an extra stream. And what is the stream? So what I say to them is, I will put you through whatever you need to study. So I pay for the education, but the rules are that if they get two fails, then I stop paying the fees. So therefore, they only choose ones they're interested in because otherwise they're not going to pass and then they're going to have to take over paying the fees. So so the point is, I think you, and, and you know, and I say to myself, like my nurse 
uh, one of my nurses is from England and so I always say, you know, if you go to England, that's part of the bonus, you know, I'll, I'll pay your trip a year. So most people say, why do you do that? But I actually think you have a happier workforce and you have uh, people who are loyal, you have people who grow with you. So I think you develop your character in theirs and it makes you, uh, you know, better for it. And then the last thing is resolving conflict, you know, without, you know, there will always be things where you disagree, but you can disagree without having hatred and anger because that's again bad for health, the same stress response. So I think we are sometimes a bit too polarized and full of hatred for the sake of hatred. And I think there's no need, you know, to be so angry about stuff. You know, I think we're just too angry. And it's funny, he was, I wrote an editorial and it, I, must, I swear it was just total timing. It was written before election, but it was called Trumping Your Hot Head. Yeah. And the thing was about when you eat junk food, and you eat, if you're very fond of burgers and this and that, a lot of those foods are high um, dopaminergic foods. So it makes you a bit manic. But some of these foods, because of the chemicals, also make you angry. So if you were to eat more natural foods and almonds and walnuts and blueberries and oats and things, you're actually generally going to be calmer than if you're eating junk food and go and this or that. So, so I think there's a message is there are other ways you can resolve conflict, but it doesn't have to be personal. And I think that's the other thing is we take everything too personally. So, so my dad once said something very good to me. Like when I, like I said, I struggled a lot of different parts in my career. And often I thought, I've never done anything to that guy. Why did I hear that he's been saying things about me? And my dad said to me that, just think about this. If you were a failure, nobody would be talking about you. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's a good way. When somebody says something bad about me, I think I've earned it. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Haters gonna hate you. Shake it off. I then asked Dr. Paul what he was most thankful for in life. I'm just thankful to be able to live life, to do the things you see, because we don't realize how we are the fortunate ones in life. So I say this to my staff as well, like sometimes the receptionist, like you said, this is the thing with the front desk job. And she'll often say, oh, I got to answer the phones and she's getting stressed. And I often say to her, I said, just stop and think about it. We are the fortunate ones because there are people in the world who have no meal for a whole week. And the people in the world who are dying, like I get patients in 20s who got melanoma and they're dying. And the fact that, you know, you can be healthy, you can be happy, and when you learn to find happiness, I think that's, there's nothing greater because this is our only chance in life. And I think this is one message I've often felt is because people, the world is getting more polarized even in religion. And one of the things is, whatever you believe in, let's just say you're Judeo-Christian or Islamic, and you believe in heaven or hell. If you're Eastern, Hindu, Buddhist, Shinto, you believe you get reincarnated. Or you're greeny atheist, you get recycled by earthworms. But in all these three, the truth is, as Jeremy, Greg, you're never going to come back in this form. Whatever religion doesn't believe, you may have an afterlife or you may be born as something else, but you are not going to come back as you. So that's why I think that we get too screwed up about other things and take things better. Why? You know, so I'm thankful for being able to live life on my terms. And, and what I like is the fact that if I'm coming to the US, I can choose to come how I like, travel how I like, do the things I like. And I say no to the things I don't like, and that's fine. But 
but when I'm coming here to do a job, I want to do the best job for myself as well as the publishers. So I don't want to let them down. I don't want to let myself down because I want to do the best for the book because after all, you spent a couple of years writing it. So it is your baby. So you want to nurture it. But the thing is, there's no point, you know, it's not about me or it's not about them or it's not about, it's ultimately about the readers, about the people you connect with. So what I find is when you meet people on a plane or something like that and people start talking and people will say that, you know, you are very uh, calm and you are, uh, you know, many people say to me on the plane that they have spoken to me more than they've spoken to their doctor in their entire life. I had two people on this plane just coming from Dallas. They asked me about some medical stuff. They said, what do you do? And I said, I'm here for a book. And they said, you know, we can't talk to a doctor like this because there's this distance. And I just think we're all human beings. And maybe the fact that I grew up in so many different cultures helped. But I think irrespective of that, I think what I'm really thankful for is that I'm doing the things I love and I don't have anything in my health or disability which is stopping me from doing it. And, and I think that's the thing and I don't need a lot of money to be happy and, but I'm grateful that I can have enough to do all the things that I want. So, you know, I don't uh, have to worry about, you know, where's my next meal coming from? Because if you're in that position, then it's very difficult for you to follow your dreams because you, then you're in survival mode. So you've got food for a week. So you're thinking, how do I survive? How does my family survive? How are you going to dream? And I think that's our abilities. We need to give everybody the ability to dream. In fact, in my first novel, there is a line which um, says, not in this one, but in another novel, there's a line which says, there's a father teaching a son to fly kites. And he says that dreams belong in the clouds if not, we'd not move mountains to reach them. Yeah, right. and, and, and I think the other problem we have is we want our dreams to be accessible straight away because we become lazy. Yeah. So, Especially so we don't want instant. Yeah. So we don't want to work for it. So, so if you want to become, like you said, a painter, you want to expect to just go home and buy a thing and paint. Exactly. Yeah. So, like I said, that's why the writers approach. You got to develop your character. You resolve your conflict in your own technique, and that goes for everything. Yeah. Set the context. If you're painting, what is the kind of painter I want to be? Secondly, develop the character. Work on it. And thirdly, you'll come to some conflicts where you think that doesn't fit my style, I actually like this better. And then you will find your niche and that may not be the most profitable niche. Like my fiction is literary fiction, it's more the book clubby kind of philosophical books. So I know they're not mainstream books. You're never going to be thriller or a romance writer who sell mega volumes. Hmm, absolutely, yeah, that's okay. I, I know a romance novelist here who sells like a million copies because they do. But what she said to me is, interestingly, she said, she doesn't have as much control over the content as I do, and which was interesting. She said to me, for romance and for thrillers, there's a trope. So you have a hero, you have an anti-hero, and you have a heroine. You've got to always have that because the female always wants two people competing. So what she said is the publishers know that the readers look for it. So in each novel in this romance genre, so if you look at any whatever, uh, that one with the vampires, what was that, uh, you know... Uh, Twilight, yeah. But if you think there's also a werewolf, see? So there's always two competing for one female. Think of any other romance, whether it's mainstream, there's always another. Uh, right. Same with superhero movies. There's always an alter, you know, anti-hero. Right? But, but, but what they say is, she said to me that once you have the trope, 
they actually give her the theme she said she said she was during that time she had to write vampires then they moved on to werewolves now it's become sci-fi so they got to have a hero who is a space you know some outer space and then the anti-hero is also an alien so but so you don't have actually control over it but you are a machine you're producing what they want so then i think okay i have more control i can write philosophical stuff and it's okay but you're not going to there's a balance so they make more money they're happy and i can write whatever i want and it goes and it's okay which is much better i would say you know that's it and i think and and sometimes you get very a funny story greg the novel i just gave you i was on the plane here and the woman in the seat in front of me was reading this book and i got up to the toilet and recognized the cover and i thought so i said to her do you want me to uh, sign it for you so she grabbed it and held it tight and she said no it's my book and i said oh sorry but later it struck me that she thought it was a chat up line that I was trying to write my number on a book or something right so when we were getting off the plane we were in the queue to get off and then she saw she had finished the book and she looked at the cover and then she looked at me and she goes yeah and i said i said if i had a chat up line it would be better than that i said that's that i said that's why i have as offering decided because i thought a signed copy may be worth something more than But she thought some random guy was just trying to scribble over a book. And she's like, that's mine. You know, you get off this. That's so weird. The funny thing also was that in that same book, there is a letter. When you read it, you'll see written by a grandfather to his granddaughter. And I've got emails from many people around the world saying it helped them deal with grief, that thing. So sometimes when you write that kind of philosophical stuff, people take different things from it, which you don't think at the time you're creating it. So so I think you you end up then reaching more people than you do. So I actually found quite a Yeah, absolutely. That's it. That's what I mean. That's right. Absolutely. Because that's the beauty of art to some people like some. And and that's the thing about setting the context. So that's why and the context you set is really for you, not for other people. So I'm not worried if, you know, if some people open it and think this is not a thriller i don't like this kind of writing and that's okay because you straight away know they weren't in your context Precisely. and that's okay Precisely. you know so so same thing that you know painter you know like da vinci wouldn't worry if somebody likes modern art because he's doing different and that's okay yeah. and I, i think we don't define ourselves enough and that's why we don't even know who we are the question you got to ask yourself is that if this was your last day would you think that you've done everything that you want to do right yes. and i think at this point in time at any given point in time allowing for time and age and everything i've done everything that i want to do because i've never not taken the chance i've never said no i'm too frightened i'm too this i'm not going to drop time so i think and i think that's the thing is most people are not ready so they're afraid and and with it yes. comes everything else with that fear comes lashing out at others bitterness the whole vicious cycle and just not going forward yeah, you it. know and i think it's it's not just fear or maybe it's a combination of fear and fear of discomfort mm-hmm. you know we we're so addicted to comfort that it keeps us from like well no i don't want to do this or yeah, quit this job or, or yeah or, or even maybe you have the hunger but it's just like nope i don't I want to face i don't want to sacrifice this but that's what i'm saying but most people you speak to be it in business or art or everything as they've been rejected they've had setbacks 
they work very hard for their dreams because that's why it's a dream because it's got to be unreal. Exactly. <laughs> if it's real, it's not a dream. <laughs> that's it. Dr. Paul is now going to talk to us a little bit about a conversation he had with the author, speaker, etc., Malcolm Gladwell. It would have been cool to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. And this was like, I was in Dublin, Malcolm Gladwell, and we were talking about it because, um, and he was saying that, like when they were looking intuitively, when you look at athletes and things, like he wrote the 10,000 hour rule thing and that outliers. And what he was saying is, didn't matter whether you were a Federer or you had you thought you had no tennis talent. It still roughly took about 10,000 hours till you became the world's best. And if you had some natural ability, maybe maybe nine and a half thousand, but not by much. So roughly it took 20 hours a week, so about five, four hours a day, which is 20 hours a week. And then we have, you know, 50 weeks or so thousand hours a year and it took 10 years. So if somebody like Nadal then practices eight hours, as all these tennis guys do, so they shorten it to maybe five. But that's the time it takes on court. So if you don't put in those hours, you don't see the results. And that's the same with everything. And I've said that, and funnily enough, I was saying to him that when I started my practice, my own practice in 1996, so it was funny, like, if I was calculating my actual operating time in the OR, I probably reached about 10,000 hours because I do a lot, maybe in 2006. And funny, in 2006, I was just at the conference and uh, this university in Australia offered me to chair the department. In Vienna, they asked me to be the head of the World Congress for my specialty. And these things just started happening. And suddenly I was like, I'm not even contacting these guys. Why are they suddenly coming to me? Because you naturally build that up. One last thing I want to show you guys is this is my latest research. Is this, this is what I spoke about at the Mayo Clinic. And this is something I'm very fascinated about. All right, now stuff is going to get crazy. We're going to delve into some pretty fascinating stuff, including some recent discoveries and innovations made by Dr. Paul himself. Seriously fascinating when he was explaining all of this. So I developed a new device which measures skin tension. So if you think about surgery in 1861, so it sort of invented two operations. But what happened in 1861, there was a guy called Langer in Vienna who punched little holes in cadavers in uh, corpses and he looked then the if you made round slits they sort of pulled in certain directions because they were the sort of cleavage lines so he marked them out and those formed the basis for surgical incisions uh, right so till today uh, in 1861 oh, okay. Okay. so since then everybody's been virtually using these lines and with some modifications but by and large but then i came up with the concept that his thing were low load lines because he just made little holes. Whereas when you make cut big things out like I do, then the tension is not relevant because the interplay between elastin and collagen is different. So I made a device which is a computerized tensiometer. You put it in and it measures the tension before and after you cut a wound out. So that was published in Nature, which as you know, is quite a respected scientific journal about that. So the next thing I was looking at is, so, so in Vienna, they... So Langer's original lines, if you look at the scalp particularly, Langer's original lines run like that. And what I call best lines because biodynamic excisional skin tension lines run like this. So actually in Vienna, they've been, um, when I go for this conference next month, I'm giving a lecture in Vienna where Langer spoke 150 years ago because it's the first time somebody is giving a new theory on it. So they've asked me to come and speak on it. So, so the funny thing is, so the other thing I do is like operant animals. So that's me. 
getting this lemur down to check a tumor on its tail. Again, I'll have some pictures up for you. So, so that's why I think my life is so bizarre because I've been at these events with all these big people and then I'm operating an animal, I'm writing this, I'm writing books. I think it's crazy and that's why I think I'm so fortunate. So this orangutan is in the Auckland Zoo and she couldn't hang anymore properly because she had a contracture. So that was me operating on her and fixing her hand. Now here's what happened, but, but this is how the curiosity. So while I was operating on this lemur and while I was operating the orangutan, I was thinking to myself, looking at the hair, how come they haven't got the spiral, like the hole on this wall? They don't have it like we do it. So I was like, none of the primates had it. So, so if you look, none of, none of them, they all can have different hairstyles, yeah, but none of them have it. Right, yeah, see, none of them have it, right? <laughs> so then I thought, but every human has got it. Yeah. So then I thought, okay, hang on. So why is that? So one of the theories is that brain expands dramatically from the 10th to the 17th week of fetal life. So, and at that time, the bones are not fused. So your brain's expanding and your fontanelles are not fused, so your head expands. Because babies have almost 70% head size or brain size, whereas in all other animals, it's not like that because the brain doesn't grow. So as the babies are like sponges, they're absorbing everything. I don't want them at the beginning to move, their brain grows. But because they're not, brain is not fused and the skull moves, the skin on the top stretches. As you know, skin has two layers, epidermis and dermis. So my theory was if epidermis and dermis shear, the hair follicles are in the dermis, so it probably tilts them. So I do spend a lot of time thinking about the useless things in life. Like this is no one makes money out of this kind of a thing. So, so then I thought, can I prove it? Yeah. So then, so what we did is, so we got, so got a saline expander. And that's a saline expander we use in surgery uh, to pump up. In plastic surgery, when you want to expand some tissue to stretch okay. skin view. So I got that expander, you know, you pump like a silicon thing and you pump it up. Yeah. It's like, so then in pig, pig skin, you have that's epidermis and dermis. So you know, you learn how much force you need to shear it. So then I marked out two parallel lines, which is like Langer's lines, which in the animals go along the hair follicles. And then stitch the expander in. And then because it's stitched in, it can only expand in one direction. So we pump the expander up. So then what we noticed is one of the lines started curving, right? So like this, so that's the live experiment. So you see one line is fixed and one line starts to curve. Then I started taking tracings of all those lines. Yeah. So here what we did is we got all these tracings. And in the beginning, it just looked like, all right, they're just different patterns. Mm -hmm. But when we superimpose all of them, you got the golden spiral. Interesting. So then I thought, okay, so that's nature. So what's interesting is if you pumped it up slow, you didn't get the golden spiral. It's only when you expanded rapidly. So then I thought, okay, let's look at flowers because some flowers have a spiral, some don't. So it turns out that only the ones which open fast do and the ones which open slow don't. So that's nature's pattern for rapid expansion. So funnily enough, my paper was published in Claws, as me, talking about why we have this pattern only in galaxies and hurricanes and not in piddly rain showers and why. So the, tide, the paper was titled, the paper was actually titled Golden Spirals and Scalpels, Nature's Own Design for Rapid Expansion. So that was published by me just about a year recently. So anyway, so then I said to myself, okay, there's a corollary of it. If that is nature's pattern for expansion, could I use that pattern to expand skin myself? So if I'm cutting out something and there's a hole, Typically, if the hole is big, people end up putting a skin graft. So they shave skin, but then it looks bad because it's got right. a bit of hole. So we thought if, if the scalp 
world pattern is really that spiral. So I then tested conventional methods of closing versus using the golden spiral on pigskin using my device. Then we found traditionally this is how people used to cut it out and they used to try and move skin down, but it was quite tight and sometimes you need a skin graft. So I then started using the golden spiral and I even developed a cheat way of drawing it by using surgical ellipses. So you can draw that and ignore one and then you get a thing. Then you don't need a compass. And then, so we can see that's a skin cancer I cut out and I can just use the golden spiral boxes and close it. So that's live. And then we ended up, so this paper was published. This is a new operation now. It's called the golden spiral flap. How how using nature's own design to develop a new surgical technique. So that's my new operation. Then I wasn't finished. Then I thought, okay, so we've got this. And this is what I was speaking at this Mayo Clinic. And I said to them is, as surgeons, this is where they would have stopped. They would have said, we've got a new operation in my name. That's the end of it. But I thought to myself, why do we, if each one of us has this pattern as humans and animals don't have it, is it different between twins? Because that's the first thing you look at is then you know, is it individual or not? So guess what? We looked at twin studies and every twin has a different pattern. Ah. Right. So it's like a fingerprint. So then we thought, okay, if twins have a different pattern, then I thought, let me look at right-handed versus left-handed. Is there a difference in pattern? And But there wasn't. Oh, right? okay. I don't tell you, no, I'm saying. No, I looked at it, but there wasn't. But twins all had a different pattern. Yeah. So then I looked at language dominance. Like if you're, was there a pe- people who speak many languages as one, is there any difference? There wasn't. Now, here's what's interesting. The only people who have abnormal patterns are schizophrenics. Right. So what's interesting is... That means something is happening to the mother between the 10th to the 17th week, which is causing an abnormal expansion. Whatever it is, and that's for someone else to find out. I'm just giving the seed. Right. Now, here's what's interesting. So so then when I looked at schizophrenics and that abnormal pattern, then I took one step back and went back to, and this is a funny way, because I've been curious, I don't work linearly. So you go. So I went back and I looked at, okay, what happens when I stretch skin? Let's look at the molecular level now. Forget surgery, forget nature's pattern, forget schizophrenia. Let's look at it at a molecular level. What happens at a cellular level when I stretch skin? There is a chemical secreted called epidermal growth factor and it makes the epidermis grow. So sometimes we use it when you have wounds. We make artificial epidermal growth and put it so that it can grow more skin, like after burns, for example. So then I thought, if this is the case and schizophrenics have got this abnormal pattern, they may have abnormal epidermal growth factor. So we studied the blood levels of schizophrenia. And guess what? They've got elevated epidermal growth factor. This hasn't even been published. It's brand new. So what I said at Mayo is, in life, we think we look at biology, we look at behavior, we look at the biomechanics and patterns in nature, and we think they're all different. But they're all linked. And... That's what might. So they asked me to give a talk and it was called the biomechanics of behavior. And they were like, this is a surgical lecture. Why yeah. is it called like that? And so, so my, my point was that. So that is my latest one, which I was excited about because it is so different from anything that they had heard that they, they couldn't even understand where I was coming from. That's definitely different. Were there any cases where you found that a person with this pattern turned out to be indicative of them having schizophrenia later on? That's what I'm saying. Now we know. But what I mean is now more people need to know. Because now I know the conditions. So it's for somebody else to look at what is happening in the 10th to 17th week, which is causing the brain to expand 
at an abnormal rate. So is it the diet of the mother? Is it the drugs? Is it whatever? Is it stress? Is it what? It could be many multitude of things we know are linked. And can we but, stop it? Hmm, that's what I'm saying. We should. Yeah. And the other way of looking at it is if we know that they've got elevated levels of epidermal growth factor, rather than putting them on these toxic drugs, can we improve it by just reducing their epidermal growth factor? You see, so there's there are many, two, three... I'll show you this poster they gave me in Minnesota. It's a funny one. That could potentially help a lot of people. Absolutely. But but yeah. what I mean is it is so, the linearity, it wasn't linear, it was so insane. I think if you were like, why are you, you know, surgical thing, why are you talking about schizophrenia? Like guys couldn't, it just went, <laughs> even though everybody was a grand round thing, I could see half of them were like, where, where is this going? It's like, <laughs> that's it. Like not many people get very close to animals when you work with, so, I was operating this orangutan and a year later, she recognized me. I had opened her face and I went in and then she charged out of the, it was in Borneo in the jungles. So typically, because people don't go near them because they can, they're very strong. Like I said, humans, we've evolved weak. So people just left me and they ran off. And then of course, she just came and grabbed me and sucked my cheek in her mouth in a kiss. And my, it was a half nervous smile, but you look at the eyes and everything. Like not many people get that kind of a picture. Oh, wow. Look at the eyes on it. It's unbelievable, isn't it? In being curious, charting my own path, you've got things which, say like Oxford University, you know, people think, wow, you know, Oxford. So two years ago, they said, when when we come here, we would like you come for dinner. So I said, all right. So when I was in London, give me a lecture somewhere else. And I went to Oxford for a dinner. Then I went there and this big plaque up like this. And I didn't realize it was for me. It was so, for yeah. yeah. So I went in there and they were, and and they ambushed me because I went in there and of course luckily I was all dressed up and then they were like the warden got up and then he said, Now Dr. Paul would like to say a few words. And I had no speech prepared, <laughs> I had nothing. So and that's what I said to him. I said, This is an ambush. I said, Okay, five seconds. Then. All right, I'll I'll do. So what I said to them is, I said, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about science and this and that. But when I went to school in a bullock hat, there used to be, that bull was colorblind. And India being a land of extremes in those days, there was an Audi. There was no car tracks, but there was an Audi. And the bull being colorblind, we always charged the Audi. So I always got to school ahead of the Audi. Right. So, so about two years ago, HarperCollins actually asked me to write my autobiography. And I started writing it, and it was actually called The Bull Who Dreamt He Was a Lamborghini. Because, you know, the Lamborghini's emblem is the bull, right? So, and it was a story about my life's been like that. You just go for it. But then I actually pulled the plug on this. The reason the book didn't get published is because I said to them, I don't think it's interesting enough, the story, so I don't want to publish it. So I returned the check they gave me. And they said, no one has ever given us an advance back. And I said, here's the first time, because I don't think, I'm not ready to do it. So I didn't. So I ended up telling them the story about it and about saying that, you know, how because there were some, mostly there were faculty, but there are some students and what I was saying is that inner purpose, you know, you have is everything. I wanted to get Dr. Paul's opinion on just metaphysical matters. What he thought about mysticism and religion and how he kind of coalesced science with that aspect of life that's a big part of humanity his answer was really super cool i think there are two things one is as a scientist you tend to be more rational and trying to look for the explanation and things but we have to also understand that a lot of the stuff is still unknown 
Right. So, so like these golden spirals talking about, I've found an answer for that, but there are many other things we don't know. Right. So, and so with, with that means, if you don't know for a fact, then you have to be open to the possibility that there is a greater force or there is not. I mean, it can be both. So, so, so the way I look at it is like this is, is like in this genetics of health, the reason I bring it up is when you look at DNA, we have DNA and then the DNA have genes which they express. We have roughly about 20, 30, 30,000 genes. So we have about, we share about 90% with worms. They have a more, roughly about the same number. Yeah, something yeah. like that, right? So, so, so the issue is this is that, so okay, the DNA by nature is double-stranded, right? And so therefore it's confined inside the nucleus, so it's very stable. To my previous book I explained, but the RNA which is single-stranded can get out of the nucleus. And the new proteins, so genes just make proteins, and these proteins are like chemicals which do different things. So there is a protein which makes you not coffee not suit you there's a protein which makes it suit you because it decaps there's a protein which helps you be more athletic there's a protein which doesn't but sometimes by your actions you can turn on and off these switches so now when you look at outside the cell all the the energy comes to the mitochondria and these proteins are manufactured in the ribosomes outside the cells so when these rna comes to the dna and it takes the messages and it takes it out to these manufacturing centers there are many parts of the DNA which used to be called junk DNA, which because they weren't used to make protein. Um, so that's it. So till now, people, scientific books used to call them junk DNA. But now we know that only less than 10%, 2 to 10% of a DNA is actually used to make protein. So the rest of a DNA has templates because they're cut and put in but they're not being taken by the RNA so you've got different templates to do various different things but so it's almost like recipes you've got many recipes but only one or two see the light of day in a restaurant wow. so, so what we don't know is that we actually don't know how a lot of these other ones are turned on or what doesn't we're learning some things so what's massive about it is so if you look at it in that context, and then you look in the context of the bigger picture of life, there are a lot of things we don't know, and a lot of things, maybe one day we will know a lot more, but even with us mapping the genome, and we know the structure of it, but we still don't know 90% So what the hell is it there for, because we can't explain it. Right, yeah. So, so I think as a scientist, I just look at it, that you're open to the possibility that if you can't explain that there may be something else, but, you know, so therefore I'm not religious, you know, uh, I'd say people, because I say all this, people may, I would say, I'm more, if you had a definition, would rather be more spiritual rather than religious. But I, I don't think, I don't believe in organized religion because I think then you have a set of rules and then you become tribal about it because you start thinking, what denomination are you, what's this and what's that and everything else. But but I think, yeah, so that's my only, I, I don't think any answers are unique, but I think that's the, there is a lot in my own field which you leave open to possibility is yeah. one day the answer may come and then it may be more rational what you're talking about here reminds me a lot of the neuroscientist david eagleman have you heard of him i've heard of him i haven't read his hand yeah, yeah. he's very interesting and coined the term possibilianism on the one hand he's all about hard science and on the other 
he very readily admits that we can't possibly know everything about the universe. So he believes that there are a multitude of possibilities. Because a lot of this, like, like our brain even, we okay, use right. yeah, yeah, we use very small proportion of it. A DNA, we use a very small proportion of it. So, but it has evolved for some purpose. We know it. We may eventually figure it out. It's like, like this, you know, the spirals. There are plenty of books on the golden spiral being symbols from here and there and various things. It's really just a pattern for rapid expansion. So the more I looked at it, things which I pumped up slow, you get no pattern. You look, that's why you only see it in hurricanes and galaxies. They're all expanding rapidly. But, you know, a piddly little rain shower, you're not going to see a golden spiral pattern because it's not expanding rapidly. So you'll be able to find that article as well. So it's oh, like, a, like what I mean is if you just did golden spirals and put my name, that article comes about nature's expansion pattern. So it was published just recently. In fact, when, when it was published, actually one journalist from Washington, he rang me and he wanted to do a story about it for a science thing. But then he said, then, then he wrote back to say the editor said that this is science for science's sake and people may not be interested. So he, they weren't covering his time to do it. So he ended up not doing it. Oh, really? But I had a thing here. Yeah. It was some guy from Washington. Yeah. So he was like, I think it should be in the mainstream public arena of understanding this thing. And I said, yeah, I think it's uh, good for people to just think about these things. Yeah, yeah. I think you're onto something there. Even though many of us laypersons won't necessarily understand all of the complexities involved in the process by which scientific conclusions or hypotheses are derived, I think it's well worth it for the general public to have more of a keen interest in these matters, as opposed to, say, maybe what our favorite celebrities are doing, things of that nature. So they're just giving us information, we're just following it, and then it just becomes on a, you know, a little thing. You know, it's, it's just a vicious cycle like that. Okay, time to move on to the final question. You have 10 minutes to describe to an alien how you perceive life on this planet. What would you tell this alien? How do you understand life here? As when you say life, do you mean life as in how is it to live or do you mean life forms? Basically to help the alien understand what are you people and how do you interact with one another? What are you hoping to achieve? It's actually a difficult one because I don't think we are headed in the right direction. Only from a point of view, I think that every sign is negative in our evolution now that we not need polarization, environment being destroyed, um, not being intuitive about our, ourselves that if you fast forward, I think, 50 years, there's going to be so much shortage of food and water and everything else that there's going to be wars like we're going to be like it's almost like we're going to come full circle so but to answer your question with the aliens is the first thing is to be honest if an alien came here because right through civilization wherever someone else has gone into another thing they've just crushed them so i i we can't assume that they're actually going to be friendly that they really want to know about us. <laughs> so, so, so we may be the Native Americans or the Australian Aborigines. We may end up with a, a reservation somewhere. We'll pretend that this is a friendly but curious alien. That's it. I, I, I think the reason humanity endured is not for the reasons we think. So we didn't endure because of uh, wars and advancement. We'd be endured because of nurturing one another. And, and I think that's why our genes are the nurturing genes. So 
if a child is nurtured at birth it does better later on if you're more generous it's healthy for you so i actually think the reason we were able to colonize as i say in the book is because we've actually looked after our communities whereas uh, if we were now we're becoming individuals which is more unnatural so i think if you ask us what's our purpose is our purpose is to nurture everyone else on the planet including our fellow people but unfortunately we have moved away from it into becoming so individualized that it's all i me myself you know stuff you kind of thing and that's why i think you know i can't see this ending well only because we're running out of resources and that's it so we're now see the world could sustain 10 billion people so the only way you'd sustain it is two ways one way is everything will become chemical in the future the other probably we're not going to have enough food so everyone's going to pop a pill in the morning which is what the IT guys like the silicon valley is proposing you know you get all the amino acids you just pop one thing in the morning but what i think is that's not humanity is about living life and i just think we will become then like robots because you just pop a pill give you enough energy you just go and work for an IT company i just, i don't see that as life what made us what we are is this creativity everything else but the biggest threat is our environment and i and i think it's quite scary because we are not intuitive because we can't sense we like we don't have antennae like cockroaches and other things who can sense what's happening around them i mean our environment is getting toxic but we can't see it but because of it we have a lot more illnesses we have a lot more stuff so they talk about big cities there are like 75000 preventable deaths in each of these big cities just from our environment yeah, but from we, the just from there that's it but we're more and more and more we're polluting it and we're still looking at it economically and saying no i'm going to bring back coal because i promise it. but but the fact is that's gone you know you, that you know you can't do it but we don't we're not intuitive but i guess what is our purpose is really to nurture whether it is our ideas our children our friends because every time we don't nurture it's actually you know because if you look at it that's one of the things they say you know no war was ended by another war at the end of the day somebody had to talk and come to some sort of solution so it's, it was always about a bit of give and take a bit of nurturing and i think that's what humanity is about because if an alien came they may be in a different kind of a society where in the beginning we were like that we were all single cell creatures which didn't have any links the only reason we evolved is because we linked up and then when we linked up when we had we could rationalize resources better and then different parts said okay i'll do the be the eyes of it you be the butt and then you know it became creatures right so and and it's the same with the world you know with different parts for different things but we, we don't have that wholeness of purpose well i definitely hope that we don't come full circle here yeah, yeah but you know i i must say all the science scientifically look more and more we're disregarding the science behind it we more and more we don't see what's happening yeah well that was an intense discussion I hope that you got a lot out of it just like I got a lot out of it. And Greg, the camera guy. By the way, we're going to have video of this interview at some point, probably. My goal is midsummer. We'll see. Uh if you want to learn more about Dr. Paul, you can go to his website at drsharedpaul.com. That's d r s h a r a d 
P-A-U-L.com. DrSheridPaul.com. Hey, thank you so much for checking out this episode of In the Shoes Of. If you like or don't like the podcast, feel free to leave a review or reach out to me. My email is jnickel at intheshoesof.org. I'm Jeremy Nickel, the host and producer of the show. Until the next time, see you later. <laughs>